Okay, so 1 John chapter 4. Let's turn back there together. Just get rid of some of these things. Alright, 1 John chapter 4. And we're just going to look at these six verses this morning. Uh, 1 John chapter 4 is kind of divided into two parts. Uh, the, the section we're going to look at today, and then tomorrow, uh, next week, I should say, we're going to finish off uh, the rest of the chapter, so verses 7 till the end of the chapter. But today we're just going to look at those first six verses uh, that we read before. And it's about testing the spirits. Testing the spirits. And how do we do that specifically? Well, uh, we're going to be looking at false prophets. False prophets. What is a false prophet? Why are there false prophets? Uh, how can we spot a false prophet? And how should we respond to false prophets? So we're going to look at those questions this morning. And uh, going to be on the overhead there as well. Hopefully you can follow along with that. And in your Bible, we're going to be looking at a number of verses. So uh, be prepared to jump around a little bit. And we'll, uh, we'll cover this, this topic. But first, before we get into this, we probably need to be reminded of the context, we uh, obviously haven't been in First John for a while now, so uh, this uh, portion of Scripture, these six verses, they're sandwiched between, obviously, First John 3 and First John 4, 7, but both of those are talking about love, talking about love. And at the end of First John chapter 3, we, we see just there in the last verse, it says, uh, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given. So before that, he's talking about obedience, showing God love through obedience, uh, and then he talks about the Spirit. And you can see how this transition then happens. You know, we have the Spirit of God, and then in verse 4, starting to talk about another Spirit, a different Spirit. But it's interesting that 1 John 3 is concerned very much with love. In fact, most of 1 John is talking about love, and 1 John after this, and what we're going to be looking at next week is talking about love as well. And this is kind of sandwiched in the middle. And I thought that was interesting um, because often when we start analyzing other people or other people confessing themselves to be Christians, one of the first things people say is it's unloving to be judgmental. It's unkind to start saying bad things about somebody even if their doctrine is wrong. Um, and, and we... You know, it's interesting that these are sandwiched in between love. So part of love is actually knowing and speaking the truth and uh, sort of knowing that there's this, this, this battle going on between the spirit of truth. And it says there in verse, uh, verse 6, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's a war going on. And uh, there's two sides to that fight. There are as a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. Or, or earlier in the chapter there it says the spirit of God or the spirit of Antichrist. And, you know, we all acknowledge this. We all know and understand that there is right and wrong. There is a battle going on between right and wrong, pure and, and, and evil. We don't have to teach kids about right and wrong. They just automatically know that uh, there's right and there's wrong. It's, it's funny, as adults, we suddenly start to think that we come from monkeys or something like that where there is no right and wrong and we're just another animal. 
We have to unlearn that because we know in our heart that there is a spiritual warfare going on, that there is uh, a good side and a bad side. There is good and evil. Uh, even other religions, of course, acknowledge this, um, and, and we know in our hearts that that, that is the truth. Uh, we don't come from animals, um, and part of the, the reason why we can see that we don't come from animals is the spiritual dimension that we have, which animals don't have. Uh, you know, in the, in the way that animals treat each other, we can see that there is, there is just not this right and wrong attitude. Um, you know, we have praying mantises around us in the summertime. You know, the, the female eats the male, or eats the head off the male. Um, you know, that sort of thing is acceptable in the animal kingdom, but not acceptable in the human realm. Uh, you'd end up in prison, um, and we know that that's not right. So we don't need social conditioning to tell us that uh, there is the spiritual warfare going on. Um, you know, we can see it right from Genesis 1-1 right through to Revelation, to the end of this world. So with, with acknowledging that fact that there is the spiritual warfare going on, we've got to ask the question, why are there false prophets? John calls it there the spirit of Antichrist. You see that in verse 3. The spirit of Antichrist. So what is a false prophet and why are there false prophets? Well, a false prophet really is somebody who proclaims themselves to be an authority or a teacher of the truth, representing God, but they are not being led by God. They are being led by other forces, by satanic forces. A false prophet can sometimes be difficult to spot. And this is who John is addressing here. Those ones that look like us, they use the same vocabulary as us, they go to church, they dress nicely, they hold a Bible, they'll call themselves Christians. You couldn't pick them out in a lineup, which one was right and which one was wrong. And that's deliberate. 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 14 says this, And what I am doing I will continue to do, this is Paul talking, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. He's talking about false prophets. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's what we're looking at today those who would disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 14 of that chapter says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan is a great imitator. He looks like the angel of light. He looks like he's pure. He looks like he's holy. But he's the opposite. He's the Antichrist. And he has this Antichrist spirit. And we know of the Antichrist, obviously, in end times, capital A Antichrist. He's a person, again, driven by Satan. He will emulate Jesus. He will do miracles and he'll be a powerful speaker. He'll do amazing things. Everybody will love him. He will look pure. He'll look fantastic. He'll look like Jesus. And right up to that time of tribulation, He's not the only one driven by the spirit of Antichrist. Many false prophets will come and will lead those away from the true gospel. Matthew 24 says this, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Again, talking about end times. 
but true of our world today. For false Christs and prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Satan has used these tactics from the very beginning. Right back in the Garden of Eden, he disguised himself as somebody trying to help Eve to be more enlightened, to be more like God. But it was the spirit of error. It was a deception and a lie. And false prophets exist to do the same, to deceive people from the truth and keep them away from the truth. They're driven by Satan to do that. Um, I'll interject here for a little, um, uh, a little advert break, if you like. But uh, I'm a big fan of a guy called Justin Peters. Uh, he's an American preacher, um, and he calls out false teachers. And um, I've got a DVD if you ever want to borrow it. It's very good. Um, he does it very loving in a loving way, but very biblically based. But he calls out all the people. He names these false teachers by, by name. But his illustration is this, and I really like it, so I thought I'd share it with you this morning. He says it's a bit like a glass of water. If you have a glass of water, it's very good for you. It's very pure, helps your body. It's, it's really helpful. But if you take a small amount of poison and put it into that glass of water, suddenly it's a whole different thing. It still looks the same, but it'll do damage and harm. And that's what it really is a false prophet is all about. It's 90% truth or even maybe 95% truth and that little bit of error, but so often it's that error that does the damage and can lead people away from Christ. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says this, But false prophets also arose up among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, even denying Jesus Christ, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. What they preach is heresy, but it is brought in very secretly. Like Satan slowly worked on Eve and brought in seeds of doubt and then fed those seeds of doubt, a false teacher or a false prophet will do the same. They'll work on the truth, start on the truth, and then lead into error. Just as there will be false teachers among you, it says there. And so where do we look for false teachers? Among us. False prophets and false teachers are among us, among the Christian community, sometimes even within churches. But in bookstores, Christian television, Christian music, we can see false teaching. I had a friend of mine gave me a, a book. Uh, it was very overtly Christian, and he's a Christian, Christian man. I don't think he'd read the book. It looked great on the outside. It was calling men to be men, and it was about being, being manly. Uh, it talked about fatherhood and things like that, and it looked really good. I read about 40 pages of the book, um, and it, it, was, it was just flawed. A lot of the, the summations he was coming to was taken out of context. The Bible wasn't handled very well. Uh, the truth was diluted or changed. And so after about 40 pages, I, I threw the book away. But what bothered me was on the front of that book, 
and said that this was an international bestseller. And many people, I, I suppose, read that book and took what was saying as gospel. And it wasn't true. A lot of it was well out of context and not helpful. And so false prophets are here. They're tools of Satan to lead people away from Christ. It's a serious business. But sometimes they look more religious than we do or more Christian than we do. And that's what we need to be aware of as well. So we're going to look at how can we spot a false prophet? How can we spot a false prophet? And I've, I've done this little... It's not very often on the Sunday morning we do um, an object lesson, but I'll do an object lesson for you this morning. I did this with a teenage group a little while ago. Uh, so if you're a bit older than a teenager, you'll have to use your imagination and uh, think back to when you were a teenager. But what I did was this. I gave the students, I showed the students this, and what I've got here is a $100 note and a $20 note. And I said to the, I said to the teenagers, I said, somebody pick one that they want. And of course, they were all pretty keen because money is pretty keen to, to teenagers when you don't have very much. And of course, the, the, the teenager that I chose came and got the big note. They went for the 100, not the 20. And it wasn't until I turned it around that they realized that the 100 was only printed on one side. Okay. The application, of course, is fairly obvious. Counterfeit. Sometimes other religions may look better than the real thing. They may have everything that you want in a religion. But when you turn them over, you see that they're empty. They're not the real thing. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so I've got a few different um, tests that we can do. We'll look at three tests this morning. This isn't the most exhaustive list of, uh, of tests that you can do, but we'll take two out of this passage and one out of the wider context of uh, John, and we'll have a look at these three tests. And I've kind of tied it into a little bit so that you can remember them of this idea of counterfeit. You know, with a counterfeit note, there's a few different ways that you can find whether it's a real note or a false note. One of them would be obviously to turn it over, to make sure it is printed on both sides. That would be a fairly obvious one. But there's lots of other tests you can do as well. And, uh, and people spend long hours studying these things to find out what is a true note and what might be a counterfeit note. But the size of the note, the paper it's printed on, the serial numbers, and most importantly, I think, in our currency anyway, the hardest thing to forge is the watermark. This watermark here, you'll see some see-through on this one and uh, not see-through on that one. Uh, there's all sorts of little patterns and things inside it. It's very hard to print it inside the note. Um, so of all the things to look at in a note, one of the things that is most important is the watermark on the note. And so the first study, uh, the first test that we're going to put, uh, we're going to learn about this morning is that we'll call it the watermark test. Watermark test. And it's, are we talking about the same Jesus as the Jesus of the Bible? So that's the watermark test this morning. Are we talking about the same Jesus? When somebody gets up and preaches or teaches, when you hear something on the radio or on the television or you read something in a book, are they talking about the same Jesus that we know from the Bible? That's the watermark test. It says there in verse 2 of our text, 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Do they confess Jesus? Now you have to remember a little bit about context, why John picks this one test and this aspect of that test. He's fighting a thing called Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism is a belief that the human, physical things, and the spiritual things are separated. That everything physical is evil, and everything spiritual is good. And so what they were saying was Jesus was a spirit. He had to be, because that's good. But he couldn't have been physical, because that's bad. And so that's why John picks up on that, and he says, you've got to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. You have to believe that he was a man, just as he was God. 100% man and 100% God. That is what John is saying here. And it's a pretty good test. It's not the only test, but we have to remember that John is building on things he said before. You know, there's a lot of false teachers in the world today that would immediately pass that test if that was the only test there was. Do you believe that Jesus has come in the flesh? Yes, I do. So we need to dig a little bit deeper sometimes. Things are a little bit cleverer sometimes than we take at first glance. So let's go back and see what John, the other, added, the other things that we need to take into consideration here. As we're reading this passage, we need to look back to 1 John chapter 2. So turn back to 1 John chapter 2. He's building on what he said before, and that's the way John writes his book. He comes back over the same topics, fleshes it out in a bit more detail, moves on, then comes back to them again. So in 1 John 2, verse 18, we read, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from among us. <coughs> they went out from us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. See where they came from there. They came from within our circles, they went out. And the same with in the very beginning. They were part of the apostles and, and a part of the disciples, sorry, that were following the, the apostles there, but they went out, did their own thing. They went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Be aware of this verse, chapter, verse number 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. We'll look at that in a second. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the, the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. We write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. 
and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So by adding that text to what we're studying this morning, we give it a little bit more clarity. John is telling them to believe what they were taught from the beginning. From the beginning. So what did John teach in the beginning? Well, let's go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. He was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We'll skip verse 8. It's talking about uh, John there. Verse 9 talks back about Jesus again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the Jesus of the Bible. If they do not believe that, if they believe in another Jesus, they do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And they are a false prophet. So let's have a little look here at how this plays out. One of the most common groups that you will meet, well there's two really, you'll either meet a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, and they uh, fit this category. And uh, I thought it was interesting, I went to the Mormon website to plug in this and to ask them this, this question, the watermark test. Who do they believe Jesus is? Well, they believe that Jesus, uh, this is according to them, this is the official answer from the Mormon website. What do Mormons believe about Jesus Christ? Do Mormons believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Now, a Mormon will say that they're, that they're a Christian. I don't know if you've talked to Mormons, but they will say they're Christian. They believe in Jesus. They use terms like repentance and faith and atonement. They believe in following Christ. After all, they call them the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So do they believe the same Jesus as we believe? Well, here's the official answer from the website, mormon.org. I'll put it on the screen there so you can see it. Might be a bit small, but I'll read it to you anyway. So this is what Mormons believe about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the literal Son of God. His birth, his life and death and resurrection fulfilled the many prophecies contained in the scriptures concerning the coming of a Savior. He was the Creator. He is our Savior and he will be our judge. They've got some scripture references there. Secondly, under the direction of our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ created the earth. When Jesus lived on the earth approximately 2,000 years ago, he led a perfect life. He taught by word and example how people should live in love of God and others. 
through his suffering in the garden of Gethsemane and by giving his life on the cross, that is, by performing the atonement, Jesus Christ saves us from our sins as we follow him. Because of the atonement, you can be forgiven of your sins when you sincerely repent. Through his resurrection, Jesus Christ saved us from death because he overcame death. We will all be given the gift of resurrection. That is to say, our spirits will be eternally reunited with our bodies. When life on this earth is over, Jesus Christ will be the final judge. And that's all they say. Now, if you read that, you would think that's actually not too bad. When you look at that, a lot of what they say lines up very closely with what we say. So we have to go a little bit deeper. We have to relook at what they've said there, and not so much of what they have said, but what they haven't said what we know they believe. But there's a few subtleties in there, and this is what I wanted to bring out, is how subtle this can be. Okay. First statement there. Oh, let's start with the second statement. It says, Under the direction of our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ created the earth. Does that send a little warning bell in your head? Under the direction of the Heavenly Father. What are they actually saying by that statement? Well, what they're saying is that Jesus needed direction because Jesus couldn't do it himself. See, they don't believe that Jesus is equal to God. They don't say that. You have to read between the lines, but that is what they believe. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe Jesus is equal to God. They believe that Jesus is actually created and the brother of Satan. They don't say that. You don't find that on the website. Why don't they say what they really believe? Why do they try and hide it? Why do they try and sound so much like us? Because they want to sound and look like Christians. Because they are being operated and pushed by the spirit of Antichrist. 2 Peter 2.2 2 says, False prophets secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And one of the very common things that happens is they bring down Jesus. They don't make him equal to God. Deny the Trinity, deny the God, the God of the Bible, deny Jesus Christ was God. And the same with the third line there. third line there says, When Jesus lived on the earth, he led a perfect life. He taught by word and example how people should live in love of God and others. And that's right. That's right. It's a right statement. But what they don't tell you there is that they believe that we have to live like Christ too. That salvation is not by grace through faith, but that there's works you must add to it. And if you're looking carefully, you'll see there in the fourth paragraph that they've added a reference there to the Book of Mormon at the end. The Book of Mormon is not equal with the Bible, but they teach that it is. So do you see how subtle these things can be? See how sometimes you can become, in conversations, you can think you're talking about the same thing, but you're completely not. And Jehovah's Witness use the same argument. Why? Because they are both being driven by the spirit of Antichrist. The Book of Mormon. Well, the Book of Mormon, of course, was written by Joseph Smith in 1830, uh, nearly, or 1800 years after Jesus Christ came. And they make it equal to the Bible. So I want to do one thing here. 
Uh, next slide, there we go. The Book of Mormon, okay, this, this is the only cover that I've seen of the Book of Mormon. Uh, I don't think they have a wide range of designs or co covers or anything, but every one that I've seen says this underneath it. Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Another Testament. Well, let me read you Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, this is Paul talking, remember, to the church of Galatia, even if we, Paul, or, an, or the apostles, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul uses very strong language there. Now, if Paul was writing in the first century and saying there is not going to be anything new, and if you add anything new, you, you are to be accursed, why is it that you can add a book 1,800 years later, and somehow the rules change. It's a serious business to add or to take anything away from the gospel and from the Bible. So when we're talking to someone, when, when we're listening to somebody else talk or preach or teach, or we're, we're just having conversations with others from, from different faiths and different religions, those even professing to be Christians, we need to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Give them the watermark test. Are we talking about the same Jesus? And there's many other passages we could turn to as well. But a lot of them will try and demote Jesus. Take him out of being 100% God. So, that's the first test. Second test in our, in our passage here uh, it comes from verses uh, 4 to 6. Uh, Little children, you are from God and over have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, talking about false teachers. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we call this the numbers test, just as you would examine the serial numbers on a note to see if the note was, was genuine or not. Here's the numbers test, and it works opposite to the way that a lot of uh, those in Christian circles, so-called Christian circles, work. Many will say, look at the size of our churches, we must be being blessed by God. We have thousands come to our services. Surely that's the blessing of God. And what's interesting to note is in John's book here, he's saying the exact opposite. If you are appealing to masses of crowds, many of them unsaved, then the warning is that you're not preaching the true gospel. You know, if you're filling a stadium full of people and most of them are unsaved 
and they keep coming back every week after week, you need to look at the message. You know, some of these TV evangelists, they're more like personal coaches than they are those men who should stand up for the gospel and for Jesus Christ and for God. But they use all the same words, don't they, that we use. Well, we need to remember that when, you un, when the gospel is undiluted, it is offensive to those who are not saved. It says there very plainly, the world will not listen to us. If you preach the gospel unadulterated, plainly, the world hates it and will not listen to it. So the truth is, if you are filling your stadiums, maybe you need to adjust your message and tell the, the full truth of the gospel. You know, and I think these Christian TV evangelists and a lot of these who get a lot of press, who make, you know, New, uh, New York Times bestseller lists for their books and all these sorts of things, it's because they either have the gospel so diluted that it's worthless or they deny the true gospel entirely. But they look like us, and they use the Bible. They hold it up. Often they don't use it very much, but they hold it up, and they say, we're following the Bible. Second Timothy 4, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, okay, this is what you need to do. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's what a preacher should be doing. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Itching ears. They like things that make them feel good. And so many of these mega churches, that's what they do. They're not evangelizing people, they're making them feel comfortable. And that is why they come back week after week and bring their friends. They get to go to a rock concert and to be encouraged by a personal coach and they walk away there feeling great. The gospel works completely the opposite to that. So a lot of these uh, people and preachers, they talk about health, wealth and prosperity, that God wants you to be happy and rich give you everything you want. Uh, there's a book titled Your Best Life Now by a very no well-known Christian author and preacher, one of the biggest pre churches in the, in the States. Your best life now, is it really? We shouldn't have a best life now. Our best life is to come. But that's the kind of gospel that's being taught there. You can get everything you want right now. It's feeding people's greed. And they love to hear that sort of thing, tickling their ears. If those preachers got up there and preached 2 Timothy 3.12, where it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, I'm not sure they'd get the same response. You know, so much of their ministries, if you call them ministries, are appealing to the world. And the truth is listening to them. But according to this passage, if the truth is, if the world is listening to them, the message is wrong. And they'll say we're doing God's work. They'll say we've got thousands of people coming to our churches. 
We've got millions of dollars in the bank. God must be blessing it. The truth is far from that. Our third test this morning is a quality test. When we look at a banknote, feel it, look at the paper it's made on, test out all the little intricacies of it, we need to examine the note. And the third test really isn't mentioned in our text, but it is throughout the book of John. And we can see some examples of this, studying the fruits of a person's life. And we are to be examining whether their lives measure up. Even Jesus said that in Matthew 7.15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, looking like us, but inwardly are ravening wolves, ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, how? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So here's some examples from, our, from the book of 1 John. One verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I think a lot of those are saying they walk with God, but are not walking with God. 2.4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that is a very applicable verse, I think, for a lot of them. Do they love the things of the world? Do they live lavishly? Most of the time, yes, they do. So, compare that with the Jews in Berea. Acts chapter 17. It says here, the, uh, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, if you remember for a second, this is Paul. Paul was something of a rock star of the time. He had all the miracles. He had risen people from the dead. He was creating this stir in the whole world, or the whole known world. He had um, been bitten by a snake and lived. He'd been beaten and lived. He'd suffered shipwreck and lived. He'd done all these amazing things. Now, if anyone came into the church with pretty amazing credentials, Paul would be the man. By his own admission, he was well-schooled. He was well-educated. He had had this encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. He had all these amazing things happen to him and the Spirit of God was working with him to do incredible miracles. So surely they would just accept what Paul said. But to their credit, they went to the Scriptures daily, examining them to see if these things were so. And they're praised for doing that. 
Is he saying the truth? They examined that of Paul to see if it was true. Now, if you looked at Paul's life, you could see the fruit of what he was preaching. He suffered incredible hardship for the faith. You know, I do wonder if any of these new preachers with these massive congregations would suffer such hardship. Would they do it? You'd only put up with what Paul put up with if you were fighting for the truth. So a lot of these teachers and preachers, Christian television and the things like that, they're driven by greed. They love the things of the world. And a good test, if you want to test their fruit, is go to their websites. There's a couple of things you'll notice about them. First of all, it's all about them. A real prophet of God is more interested in promoting Jesus than themselves. But often it's all about them. Often you'll find it's easier to find the donate button on the website than it is to give to get any sort of gospel. It's all about programs rather than the actual word of God. Sometimes you have to hunt around to even find Bible references. Shouldn't ought to be. So who are they serving? Well, often you'll hear in their messages, if you can tolerate them long enough, that they're talking more about what they think than what the Bible says. A very high prominent uh, person, Joel Osteen, said, I don't preach expository messages, that's line by line going through the Word of God, I teach thoughts. And that's dangerous. Anybody who's done any sort of study of the Bible knows that you take a verse out of context, you can ruin the whole meaning and that happens over and over and over again. Okay. So Romans 16 verse 17 says this, I, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. How applicable that is today. Smooth talk and flattery is everywhere within these books, on these Christian TV channels, and on Christian radio too. They serve their own appetites. A couple of things to note about God's preachers. First of all, they don't live lavish lives. And it's deliberately so. Look at even the Levites. They weren't allowed to own land. God put aside the Levite nation to serve them, to be the priests, the, uh, the, the God's representatives. And as such, he didn't allow them to own land. Land was divided up amongst all the other tribes. Secondly, God's preachers don't promote themselves. They're concerned for the glory of God. So how many ministries have got the name of a particular person or on their title, and that's... All the people are following as a person. Here's one. A bit controversial. God's preachers don't let their wives preach in the church. 
1 Corinthians 14 says, Women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. So many of these big churches, they have joint pastors with their wives, their wives preach as much as they do. It's not biblical. It's not right. This prosperity gospel permeates a lot of Christendom and it does a lot of damage. Second Peter 2, we read it before, says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. They're false words. They don't believe it. The only reason they're promoting this prosperity gospel is so they can live the lives that they want to live. They can have the flash cars and the big house, all of which is given to them by others who seriously believe that they're giving it to God's work and it's sad that it's not being used for God's purposes. Look at Jesus. If anybody was uh, could have been prosperous and wealthy and healthy, it should have been Jesus, God's own son. But he wasn't born in a kingdom and didn't have all the money and power he could want. He was born in a stable. He lived without even a home. Luke 9, it says, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Didn't even have a place to stay. So we can know false prophets by what they think of Jesus, by their teaching, but also by their lifestyles. So, lastly, how should we respond to false prophets? We read there in, in Romans 16, By smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So firstly, we should not be naive to what the gospel message is. We need to be well equipped. To find a counterfeit note, you spend hours studying the real thing. We should be the same with the gospel. We should know the real thing inside and out so that if even something that sounds true, but you know that it's not, you can pick up on it easily. So we can read things like the Mormon's uh, profession there. We can pick up on the subtleties that are arid. Be well equipped. Paul here is talking in 2 Corinthians 11 and he's being a little bit sarcastic, but he said, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes in and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. They put up with it. What a condemnation for those people in that church in Corinth. May it never be said of us that we put up with anyone who teaches another Christ than that of the Bible. But many churches today do that. Romans 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So how do we react? 
well, often the best thing is to avoid them. And this is particularly applicable if it's a Christian TV program, radio program, or a book. You can just throw it away or turn it off, and we should do that. Don't let false teaching invade our homes. Turn it off. Sometimes we can't avoid it, though. And sometimes if false teachers are influencing others, the right thing to do is to stand up for what is right. Jude 1.3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Sometimes it is right to contend for the faith, correct the error. First Timothy, Paul encourages uh, Timothy to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to him. We are the, to be the same, to guard the truth of the Bible. And also, lastly, we can uh, avoid them, we should expose them as well. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Paul named those who were spreading lies within their community. And sometimes it is right to do that, to expose the people and their wrong teaching. And again, Justin Peters is very good at that, and I can recommend him. So to close, John calls us here not to believe every spirit. Let's pray as a congregation, as a church family, that we do not ever fall susceptible to false spirits, to the spirit of Antichrist, because it can be deceptive and it is always deadly and dangerous. So I pray that we would be like the Bereans who studied the scriptures, who know the scriptures, so that we can spot the error.